So the person that we're going to talk about today is quite possibly the most powerful pirate in history, or at least the most powerful female pirate. Just for some context here, Blackbeard is a really famous pirate that some people say Johnny Depp's character in Pirates of the Caribbean was based off of. Blackbeard had 400 people and three ships under his rule. So that's one man giving orders to 400 men and three ships, which is still pretty impressive. And by the way, Blackbeard symbol was the skulls and bones symbol that's pretty famous nowadays. Many biker gangs use it and people into the emotional side of music also identify with it a lot for some reason. Ching Shi, on the other hand, had 70,000 people and 400 ships under her rule. So I don't want to do the math here, and I haven't, but that's way, way, way more than Blackbeard ever could think of ruling. Ching Shi was born in 1775 in Guangdong, China, which is a province in southern China, and today is the largest province in China by population. So not much is known about her early life or childhood, but she somehow wound up in Guangzhou, China, which is or was a city that was really important to the Qing dynasty, the dynasty ruling China at that time, specifically because of its trade importance and its influence as a port city. So trading with all the major empires at that time, including the Portuguese Empire, the East India Company, uh, the Dutch Empire, etc. And she started working as a prostitute in a floating brothel. So what is a floating brothel? It's essentially a brothel that floats. Haha, uh-huh, no. It's basically a ship that sells and buys sexual services. So that could be prostitutes, escorts, uh, and at that time slavery was really common as well, so you could have sexual slaves as well on the ship. And there's books written about floating brothels. There's a really famous one about this ship that was going from Britain to Australia, and there was 200 people on board, and that was the world's biggest floating brothel. I think it's just called a floating brothel, if you want to look it up. Now, even though she started off as a prostitute, her business capabilities and sense as a business person became really evident to anyone around her, actually. And she quickly became promoted to the position of being a madam. Now, what a madam is, is basically a female pimp, and they're responsible for getting clients for their employees and then advertising their services so that they don't stay out of work, essentially. And she was really successful as a madam because she had that sense and that drive, that passion for being a business person and for making money. And she had a network of really powerful and wealthy clients all across southern China and even beyond that. Now came a really important time in her life, and this is when she met Zheng Yi. Zheng Yi was a really famous pirate at that time and had thousands of men and hundreds of ships under his rule. And sources are really unclear as to why they got married in the first place, but they boil it down to two major reasons. Number one, Zheng Yi actually loved her a lot, which should be the case if you're marrying someone ideally. And reason two is that he really wanted to consolidate power because Ching Shi, keep in mind, we've talked about this, she had a network of really powerful and wealthy clients that were coming to her as a madam and were asking for her services. So that could also be a reason why Zheng Yi saw her hand in marriage. And this is sort of 
the more likely reason, unfortunately, because when they were getting married, Ching Shi asked for 50% of the entire fleet that he possessed. So that's half of the men and half of the ships that he had were under her direct rule. So if love was the case, I don't think she would have done that. That's not what you do when you're in love. You're, you act irrational, right? And this was a really rational and business-like decision on her part. So now with 50% control in his fleet, she officially became one of the few female pirate leaders in the world. And sources say that she's actually one of two female pirate leaders in history. The other one being from Hong Kong, which is also in southern China, Mrs. Han Cho Lo. And this is really significant because why is there only two leaders and both of them from the eastern side of the world? Well, having females on board or having female pirate leaders were considered bad luck signs in western ships. So being on deck even was considered a sign of bad luck because it was thought that if a female is on deck, then you could face battle soon or you could face a storm soon. Now, the first problem that the couple took care of was the problem of succession. And as we all know, piracy is a really dangerous profession. You can get blown up any second. You can get shot. You can get thrown to jail. You can. There's all sorts of wonderful stuff that could happen to you. And how they did this was by adopting a son called Jeng Po and then having two more sons uh, as a safety policy, just in case two of them died. Now, with the succession story being taken care of, with the adoption of one son and birthing two more in marriage, the next thing Ching Shi and her husband did was actually combine all of these small town pirates in southern China and try to sell them this bigger idea of sort of a pirate army, actually. And this is the line of reasoning that they used and were really successful. They formed what is now known as the Red Flag Fleet. They had six main colors, which were red, obviously, blue, green, yellow, black, and white. So these were the six main colors that the fleet split into. And there was a hierarchical structure going on with the top two being Ching Shi and her husband. So now they have the pirate set up. They have the succession in control. But sadly, at 42, Cheng Shi's husband uh, passed away, tragically. Some say that he was killed in Vietnam, out of all places. And some say that he was killed at sea by a tsunami. But regardless, this left Cheng Shi in a really, really, really tricky spot. Because now she had this huge fleet of 70,000 men and 400 junk ships. But she was only in charge of 50% of those. So who was to take over the other 50% amongst the three sons? That was the question. And Ching Shi in all of this obviously wanted to make sure that she's the one who controls all 70,000 of those men. And control doesn't go on to either of those sons that she had. But of course, things are never this simple. You can't just walk in and take control of 35,000 people that you're not meant to take control of. And Jing Po, which was the first son that they adopted, actually the only son that they adopted, was supposed to take over the other 35,000 men and 200 plus ships that they had. And this is where things get interesting. Obviously, Ching Shi's husband was mentoring Chuang Po, right? Because he's meant to take over those 35,000 men and 200 ships, which is in no means a small task, right? But 
not just mentoring him, he was actually also his lover. Yes, he was getting it done with Trengpo, low-key, and high-key, because it was common knowledge at that point in the fleet as well. And Qingxi knew this and realized this, and just a disclaimer, this wasn't uncommon practice in ancient China at that time. Many powerful business people took adult adoptions, as they were called, and tried to mentor these people in more than one way. Let's just let's just leave it at that. And so Qingxi knew this, obviously, right, that her husband's been a lover to Po as well. So she sort of seduced him and took on a similar role because she said, hey, your dad's gone, but, you know, I'm here. So what's the difference, dad or mom? You could just, <laughs> you could just substitute. That's a fair substitution. But this was a really big power play on her on her part because now Po had a soft spot for her because he was longing for some attention and someone to be there for him, which was his dad's job. And Qingxi took that job from his dad for him and got his support to take over not just 50% of the fleet, but 100% of the fleet, which is, I think this is probably the biggest play that she's ever done. We're going to talk about something else, but this was a really smart move on her part to when there was a power vacuum in this point in, in the red flag fleet's uh, history, she stepped in and did what needed to be done and got power to her completely. And by the way, I know everyone's wondering, so I'll just say it. Yes, they did get married, uh, which is a happy ending to the story, at least for now. So now with all of the ships in her control and all of the men, obviously, both literally and figuratively, I think, she wanted to make money and make use of these resources. And how she did this was by basically giving them the power to make their own decisions. She went to her juniors, her lieutenants, as she called them, and she basically said, I don't really want to see or learn about whatever you're doing. I just want you to give me my share, my cut at the end of whatever you do. So that could be raiding villages, raiding ships, whatever pirates do to make money, do what you have to do. But at the end of the day, I want my cut. And that was her deal. And which is why people liked her in the first place and joined her plan because pirates are really sort of like entrepreneurs. They don't want to be bossed around. They want to make their own decisions because they feel like the ship is their property, which rightfully so, because even though they technically stole it, so it's not their property, but they feel like it is and they want some aut autonomy in making decisions. And that is exactly what she understood as a good business person and allowed them to do that. So now the pirates were able to operate freely, obviously, and get money however they could. But... Ching Shi made a code of ethics to make sure that the fleet was well organized. And this is something that she is known for throughout history because this was extremely progressive, not just for pirates, because like pirates are not supposed to have a code of ethics because it's unethical to be a pirate. So that's a sort of a dilemma there. But but this was really progressive for any government code out there. So that could be in the West or the East. And this code was essentially there to make sure that the fleet had accountability, not just with Qingxi, but also her sons in charge. And people knew the consequences of breaking the laws. And if you broke the laws of this code, you were beheaded on the spot. So this is how seriously she and the leadership team took this code. And I'm gonna read some of the rules on this code. Uh, I'm not sure if this is entirely 
accurate, but this is what most sources have. So the first rule is all goods taken as, as booty had to be presented for group inspection, which sounds fair. The booty was registered by a purser and then distributed by the fleet leader. The original Caesar received 20% and the rest was placed into the public fund. So there you can see she doesn't care about who or actually how you get that loot. She just wants that fair distribution of 20 to 80 and that is it. She doesn't care about the sources that you use or how you get it, the long history. She doesn't want to record any of that. She just wants the percentages to be correct. The second code was actual money was turned over to the squadron leader who only gave a small amount back to the Caesar. So the rest could then be used to purchase supplies for unsuccessful ships. So this is, I think this is the best code uh, personally because this seems very egalitarian, very socialist almost because she is making sure that the wealth is distributed equally and people who really, really need the wealth actually get it. And I think this led to the red flag fleet surviving for so long and staying undefeated for so long because if she allowed the person who got the most loot to just take most of the loot, this would lead to the fleet depreciating really, really quickly because ships that need more repair, ships that need more uh, more manpower to operate, they would not have those resources if this rule was not in place. And the, sh the fleet would shrink much, much more rapidly than it did. Uh, and this is where it gets interesting. So there were a lot of special rules for female captives on board. And I think this is insanely, insanely ahead of her time, even though she's a pirate. I don't want to condone piracy. Please don't be a pirate. But this is something that Western countries in particular adopted or thought of equality in as a concept in, in the 20th century. And some even to this day, you can argue, have not completely implemented that. But some of the rules that she had for female captives were in, insanely good, I think. So the first rule was that if someone raped a female captive, they were put to death, which is, which is you know, if you think about it, this was one of the only times this was ever talked about at in the world at that time. So... That's how progressive she was as a as a leader, as a business person, or just as a squadron leader, as they called it. And the second rule was, I think, less progressive, but still. So if you had consensual sex with captives on board, the woman was, so she had cannonballs attached to her legs and thrown to drown, unless you can somehow rip the cannonballs off your legs, which I don't, I don't know how you could do that, but... And the and the man was beheaded. Uh, so once again, strict punishments for having both consensual and non-consensual relationships on board. Where you can argue that one rule is fair and one isn't. But what is undeniable is that she was probably the only dealer at that point in the world who thought of implementing such rules back in the late 1700s and early 1800s. So the progressiveness of her thought still can't be denied. And you can say this is a direct relation of uh, her being a female, number one, and also having worked in the sex industry because she must have faced this every day almost where people are not being cooperative, people are not understanding their limits in that capacity as customers even. So 
I think this code of ethics overall led to the ship being more organized, both in terms of getting repairs and being economically viable, but also in terms of if you're having a lot of relations on board in terms of intimacy, you could have pregnancies, you could have all sorts of disorder on board. And keep in mind, these people were captives, the people that the pirates were marrying or uh, being in a relationship with intimately. So they obviously shouldn't have been captives in the first place, but that was the piracy business. But if they were, to make sure that they're treated with some sort of respect in a captive way, no matter how much respect you can get in a captive way is still debatable, but she made sure that there was some sort of element of respect for captives on board. And I think not many pirates in the West or in the East were doing that at that particular time in the world. So now she had 100% of control on the fleet through her son that she seduced and had a big play there and herself and as a prosecutor with her code of ethics. Moving into the next three years, after all the dust settled, the Red Flag fleet went undefeated, coming up against some of the powers in the world at that time, the Qing Dynasty, the Portuguese Empire, and the East India Company, which was the British crown's uh, front, I would say, for ex exercising their domination over the world at that time. Staying undefeated brought them a, a lot of riches. They not only were exerting dominance on the battleground and in the sea, but also on land. So they were charging taxes in coastal villages. They had a government system going, a full proper admin system going on, where they would collect taxes in specific times from villages. And if you didn't pay your tax, it's not like the modern government system. You don't get thrown in jail or tried. You basically get killed, which is obviously a huge price to pay for not paying up money. So a lot of these villages cooperated and in turn, they obviously didn't kill them, but they also protected them from other pirates or rival pirate gangs that were coming to rob their uh, their loot, which could include money, obviously, their ships or their people to abduct them and then sell them on the slave market that was really prominent at that time. So they provided protection in a way you can say, and also, if you didn't pay, you got shot, so obviously people paid. But unfortunately, all good things must come to an end. And for our favorite pirate fleet, the Red Flag fleet, I know it's your favorite too. You don't need to, uh, you don't need to tell me, because I already know. But they had their writing on the wall as well. And incidentally, it was another pirate that was there doing, Mister. Let me see if I can get this name. Oh, Pote. He, or they, I should say, because the gender remains anonymous. They collaborated with the king government and drove Qingxi out of the coastal villages because this is where the brood or the chunk of their earnings came from, those taxes that we talked about. After they're done from those coastal villages and forced to retreat because two really, really strong forces teamed up, their money started to fade quite quickly. And finally... In September and November of 1809, they suffered huge defeats to the Portuguese Navy 
which is now known as the Battle of the Tiger's Mouth because they had no money to repair ships or get more men on board, which is why Qingxi was more successful than other pirates in the first place was that financial system that we talked about, that code of ethics, that equal distribution amongst pirates and that trying to establish some sort of order in a world without order. After this battle, they were really, really badly financially struck because they couldn't repair anything and they had no army anymore. And this is what I think is her greatest play. So they surrendered to the Portuguese Navy. We talked about one of her great plays with her stepson, but this is, I think, genius. So they surrendered to the Portuguese Navy and then they had to negotiate or she had to negotiate an amnesty with the king imperial government because these are pirates, these are criminals. And at this point, she had 17,318 pirates left. So most of them died in battles with all of these dynasties or were executed or just left. But she had more than 17,000 pirates at this time when she surrendered to the Portuguese Navy and then was negotiating this amnesty with the imperial government at that time. So out of those 17,318 pirates, only 60 had to be banished. 151 had to be exiled. So they're not dead, these 60 plus 151 pirates. They're, they're alive. Only 126 were put to death. So out of 17,318 pirates, she saved all but 126, even though, as you all can judge, and I don't think it takes much intellect or emotional intelligence to deduce that more than 126 of those pirates had done something that would punish that was punishable by more than just an exile or banishment. Or in most of these cases, they got off scotch-free. They had no criminal charges. So to pull this off after taking taxes illegally, executing people, three years of no defeats to supposedly good forces and all of these empires and uh, other forces, she saved all of these pirates. So only 126 died of her men, which is, I think that is her biggest play. You can argue the stepson was sort of a weird but good play. I Well, props to her, she got the entire fleet. That was a good play too. But I think this was her best play out of the two. Not only did she save all of these pirates, but she negotiated with the Imperial Army to have control of 120 ships that she already had as a pirate so that she can now use them for salt trade. Salt was a major export of the Qing Dynasty and Southern China at that time. And she saw this, obviously, and she wanted to export it and make an honest living. Other than that, she arranged for her stepson slash lover slash husband. This guy had a wild and vivid life, uh, Cheng Po, to be in the Chinese bureaucracy. And he became a captain in the King Imperial Army's, or sorry, Navy's Guangdong fleet. And other pirates also were given bureaucracy positions in the Qing Dynasty. With all of this taken care of, she could finally rest and live a normal life for once 
And how she did this was firstly telling the government to officially recognize her marriage with the man, the legend, <laughs> Zheng Po. And the state at that time could not do that and first refused because widows were not allowed to remarry officially in the dynasty at that time. But her request was granted as she was a wife of technically a government official at that point. She had a son and also a daughter. So that was a happy ending for the star-crossed lovers or I guess they were destined to be and eventually they did fall in love even though it started off as a power play. So that, that's pretty impressive. And Cheng Po sadly died, though. So <laughs> this is getting sad pretty quickly. But he died, and Ching Shi moved her family to Macau and opened a gambling house. So Macau has always been that spot where people go and have some fun, blow off some steam, um, and just enjoy themselves. So she opened a gambling house there and also was invo involved in the salt trade that we talked about. In her final years, she also served as an advisor in fighting the British army. But, and this is the time where the first opium war broke out. Sadly, that was her last contribution as, well, not a pirate, but as an organizer of men at sea or as a leader because she died in 1844 in Macau, surrounded by her family at the age of 69. You cannot script this. This was... This was meant to be. <laughs> so there you have it. That's the story of Ching Shi. I think a really interesting person. Way ahead of her times in certain aspects with the code of ethics that we talked about, but also doing really malicious stuff and really atrocious stuff with all of the piracy stuff, obviously. But that does raise an interesting question in my mind. And I'll probably have one of these questions at the end of every episode in relation to the person that we're talking about so that people can think about things and just, you know rock their brain a bit, or at least I can. And that question is, are people inherently bad ever? Is there anyone in history that's been just atrocious entirely? Because you think about Ching Shi, she did some pretty messed up stuff, pretty, <laughs> that piracy stuff was not cool. But at the same time, she had some, some sort of a soft spot for a certain percentage of the population that she cared about. So can you argue that people like Stalin or people like Hitler or people like Mussolini or all of these terrible, just extremely atrocious giants of personalities that we've had in history, can you argue that their intentions were well meant? I know it's a hard argument. I know some people might not want to think about it even, but it's just something to rock your brain. But yeah, I hope you guys like the show and I shall catch you next time.